Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. What is the history of activism against sexual violence? What kinds of strategies have survivors employed to combat it and to counter the stigma that's too often surrounded it? What kinds of narratives of resistance and protest have historically been given priority and what voices have been left out? My three guests today are committed to examining those questions through their involvement with an interdisciplinary research project called SHAME, an acronym for Sexual Harms and Medical Encounters. The SHAME project explores the links between sexual violence, medicine, and psychiatry, and the members of its research team define themselves as both scholars and activists. George Severs is a postdoctoral research fellow at Birkbeck University of London, He's currently working on a history of male survivors of sexual violence, as well as studying the impacts which the HIV AIDS epidemic had on the working practices of medics who dealt with survivors of rape. Alison McKibben is a doctoral student and senior associate fellow also at Birkbeck, where the SHAME project is based. Her research interests occupy the intersection of gender, law, and decolonizing studies, and her current project confronts the ways in which U.S. federal policy utilizes settler colonial discourses to reproduce sexual violence against indigenous women. Rhea Sukhdeo Singh is the Shame Project's public engagement lead, where she draws on her overarching commitment to showcasing the social and civic value of arts and humanities research and practice. She's also an historian with interests in the intellectual, social, and cultural history of medicine, and her book on the history of anorexia nervosa in 19th century Britain is forthcoming with Oxford University Press. I began the conversation by asking my guests to reflect on definitions. What do we mean when we talk about activism against sexual violence? Maybe one thing to say before saying something quite specific about how the term is used when we think about sexual violence is is that I think this is actually a broader issue for the history of activism more generally, right? So we, ha- I think, lots of us, lots of people, have a very clear view of what activism means, what activism looks like. When we think of that term, we think of things that are very public. We think of things that are loud, angry expressions of um, dissent usually of dissent, and in the case of sexual violence, very obviously in the case of dissent, right? So a very kind of go-to moment for the history of activism against sexual violence would be something like women against rape hosting a public trial of the justice system in the 1970s to, to make clear that this was not working for women and not working for survivors of sexual violence. And in my work on the history of HIV activism, that's also the case, that you, you think of groups like the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, you think of groups whose go-tos are demonstrations, are pickets, are zaps. And these are all really important parts of the history of activism, but they do, to a certain extent, blind us to other very important aspects of this history. So quieter forms of activism or things that we might not obviously go to when we think about activism. And thinking about definitions, one of the definitions that I have found very useful to get into the history of activism through is the way in which the um, religious studies scholar Melissa Wilcox defines the term when she's looking at the group, um, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, a group of gay male nuns. Um, She defines activism as any form of action that's designed to ameliorate the injustice suffered by or experienced by a particular group. And I think that's really useful when we think about the history of sexual violence because that incorporates both those very loud public forms of activism, but also forms of activism that I think lots of us would agree have activist starting points, activist aims, but look less obviously like activism. But maybe we'll think about what those might be uh, later on. Yeah, perhaps just to build on that in the case of sexual violence a bit more specifically, I think activism against sexual violence has such a, a rich history 
that has been largely um, overlooked. So when we think of activism against sexual violence, much like what George said, actually speaking directly to that, I think we think of white women, specifically white middle-class women doing speak outs and conscious raising sessions and take back the night protests of the 1970s. And then if we, if we fast forward to today where we still think about, and as we should, activism against sexual violence, we think about the Me Too movement. And again, we're centering white middle-class women predominantly. Although the histories of those movements, both, both kind of based around speaking out are actually deeply laden with women of color setting the groundwork for speaking out against sexual violence. So I think how we generally talk about activism, about sexual violence is exactly what George said, which is these very public displays. But the things that we have to kind of start thinking about is who is behind it, and it's not always women, and certainly not always white women, and also uh, what's creating the violence that underlays that. So individual violence versus institutional violence, and and also what are the the crimes that we're talking about? Crimes is such a laden word itself, but what are the crimes that we're being activists against when it comes to sexual violence, because that's certainly expanded as well, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get onto a bit later. But for me, I think it's this idea of complicating the idea that activism began in the 1970s against sexual violence and continues to be upheld by the same group of mainstream feminists that are often credited with its founding. I wondered in, in listening to you just now if, if part of the issue in terms of the narrowness of the concept of activism or the sort of the, the go-to moments, there is an issue about, first of all, whose stories of um, engagement are, are picked up, publicized and memorialized, but also who can afford on so many levels to engage in that kind of public facing activism to start with. And whether that also factors into the way that certain stories have become canonical and others have dropped from view or maybe appeared in very different sorts of spaces. I, I think that's such an interesting question. I think you can trace that line of thinking directly back, at least in the U.S. context, which is the context in which I work, in which a lot of sexual violence activism is seen to kind of spread across the world from, although I think that in and of itself is quite a simplistic narrative. But yes, who can afford to be there, you know, obviously is reflective of all of the intersections of identity that continue to work into our activism. I think that's really interesting about whose stories can afford to be heard. And there's certainly a lot of history in that. Specifically when it comes to race, we think about who was allowed to come in front of Congress in the US, whose stories were heard as, as rape versus a property crime after white women had become not a property crime if they were sexually assaulted. But then we see the legacies of slavery continuing to play out there. But I think also this question of who can afford to be a victim is obviously still very relevant today. And who can share their story in Me Too? Because they can afford to be heard against their abusers. And I think even further than that, who can afford to be heard comes back to this fundamental question of who do we allow to be victims in our minds? So not just can they share their story, but who can make their story sellable to the public? And I mean, fundamentally, will anyone believe that story? And is it worth it to tell it? Yeah, I think that's so interesting about both your research projects that they both end up centering this question about whose victimization is legitimate, whose victimization is valid and in what sorts of contexts and the way in which, well, I'm thinking, I, I suppose, particularly of your work, Alison, that the way in which those sorts of narratives turn sexual violence into something that is an individual crime, not a systemic crime, not an institutional phenomenon that needs addressing on an institutional level. And I wondered if you wanted to speak a bit about your research and how that legislative act that seems to have been framed precisely to combat sexual violence ends up through various means, at the very least, kind of perpetuating the conditions that allow it. 
Yeah, so the Violence Against Women Act is in US history kind of thought to be this overwhelming win for sexual violence activists and not to take away from that history, it certainly is. It's the first time the US acknowledges that violence against women sh should be a crime and that there is a gendered and then in the next iteration racialized aspect to that violence. So. In 1993, the Violence Against Women Act is first initiated, and in 94, it goes into force in the United States, and it's passed unanimously through the houses of Congress, which in the US, even at that time, was unheard of. So this piece of legislation like, gave more money to mostly law enforcement and criminal justice systems to create special units that would better help women prosecute crimes to make sure streets were better policed for women's safety. And at this time, there, there isn't a lot of conversation about why those funded mechanisms might actually be harmful. But at the time in 1994, Native American women are at the forefront of arguing for this piece of legislation in front of Congress. And there's beautiful histories written about the drives across the country Native women's advocates took to try and get this funding. But in that piece of legislation, they're not mentioned at all. And, and the reason I find this really interesting is because Native American women are victims and survivors of sexual violence at way higher rates than any other group of women in the United States. And it isn't until 2005 that this is acknowledged in any federal legislation and in 2013 that any kind of money or jurisdictional change comes to try to alleviate this situation. So my research then focuses on how this act develops over time. And most notably in 2013, the US government tries to close this enormous loophole in federal uh, legislation that basically allows any non-native offender to come onto native land in America, commit an act of sexual violence, and be unable to be prosecuted by native authorities, but also by state authorities. So there's no US legal system that can provide any sort of justice to native women here. And this legislation kind of tries to close that loophole, but my research argues that in fact, it actually makes it somewhat worse. And I guess I just wanna highlight at the top that native women supported this legislation overwhelmingly as they should in that they are entitled to every type of activism they can to try and support their movement to end sexual violence. But I'm interested in, in complicating the idea that the US government was trying to help native women, because I think in reality, the legislation recreates a lot of very violent ideas of native women. In particular, it frames them as the problem instead of actors that have experienced violence. And it does this in a lot of really intricate and interesting ways to me, but maybe most notably by problematizing um, indigenous communities as violent, as unjust, as unable to care for their own, rather than realizing that it is the very system of the US that creates colonial violence. So indigenous women aren't just individual survivors of violence sexual violence was used historically in the US as a way to exterminate indigenous women and try and kill off indigenous culture, if not just put it at the bottom of the social hierarchy. So my research then argues that the Violence Against Women Act, well, an important step to creating more jurisdiction for indigenous people, yeah, the solutions within it only recreated these views of indigenous populations as the problem, rather than allowing space in policymaking for Native peoples to create solutions that work for them to combat sexual violence. The, the work that Alison is doing is a really good example of the, of the way that the law has a lot to, to do to frame how these um, narratives impact the experience of survivors themselves, right? I think the, a legal approach is a really important one and an approach that's been very useful for me thinking through this comes again from legal studies and in, in this particular case is, is from Orda Aliagundar whose work on sexual violence in British Mandate Palestine makes a very interesting point about the idea of plausibility and like what who is a plausible victim and not I mean in, in that case it's fascinating because in British Mandate Palestine you have a situation where the British colonial state changes the law to allow for male victims of rape in a way that is very much not the case in mainland Britain and remains 
so until 1994. And I mean, my research is, is focused quite squarely in Britain and in the late 20th century. But the idea of plausibility, I think, is really useful. I think speaks to some of what Alison is saying there about, you know, how much is the law and by extension the state able to expand or contract its conception of who is a who is a victim, who is eligible for various kinds of compensation. But for the research I've been doing into kind of male survivors, you know, this is the key the key element for survivors, for their advocates and for medics and psychiatrists who are advocating for and working with male survivors is that for the vast majority of many of these people's lives, the state, whether we're talking about jurisprudence or whether we're talking about criminal justice or whether we're talking about very basic provision of services, health services, mental health support, do not see male survivors as, as a plausible reality. Do so you have a very bizarre state of affairs where for a lot, if you know, for the duration of the 1980s, you have male survivor charities, um, Survivors UK, as it is now, which was Survivors London, is set up in 1986. And before that, you had a few other groups who are advocating for male survivors, but the law doesn't recognise this category. So you have a very uneven, patchy geography of, of provision of, of care for, for male survivors, um, but nothing umbrella, nothing uniform, right? So it's Post, you know, sort of postcode lottery stuff where if you're a survivor and happen to live in Sheffield or London or a number of other places with with a, a charity that might be able to support you you might be able to get some support otherwise men are having to phone rape crisis centers some of whom are willing to help if they can but had you know very little resource or were unwilling to to deal with them um, and so they have very little recourse to, to much help so the change of the law really matters you know it, it, it's one of these things where historically often the law changing sometimes this recognizes a state of cultural affairs that's already existing and that is sort of the case here where you know you have a kind of widening cultural visibility of male survivors up to 1994 which does make it possible for the law to change but it really does have an impact in that that then really impacts the services that male survivors are able to access because when you have that legal change it starts to become the case that there are some kind of statutory obligations for local authorities or for people in receipt of local authority funds to be more accessible to a wider gamut of rape survivors so that's a long-winded way of talking about the fact that some of those legal definitions of you know who, who has survived a rape or who has been a victim of a rapist does have some really important outcomes both culturally and also kind of practically and in terms of resource. Can I ask, does that kind of shift, that legal shift, relate to the AIDS epidemic and to any sort of sense of, I don't know, increased need or increased legitimacy or increased plausibility in your terms? That it's hard to say, I mean, explicitly, no, that there is no, there's no kind of explicit justification given for, for that legal change to be based in anything related to HIV or AIDS. As far as I've found so far, that could very well not be the case. And we'll say at the top as well, that this, this remains a work in progress, but culturally and kind of contextually, I think there is a lot to, to be said for the fact that the HIV AIDS epidemic makes visible a larger gamut of kind of male sexuality of masculinities, maybe slightly more generally, that, that makes, a number of people, whether it's TV producers or legislators or audiences, more ready to accept as plausible a male survivor of rape and what the potential injuries of that might be. So whether it's, you know, actually contracting HIV, that's one thing, but the, the kind of the, the, the fear of, of that being the case is something that people are able to understand in a slightly more, some people are able to understand that much more readily because of the HIV epidemic right in that that then becomes a, a noticeable anxiety and that's the real problem is that you know this is this is the case for all survivors of sexual violence or for many survivors of sexual violence is that very often your your injuries are not visible right and that the, the state is not very often set up um and this is often the case for sexual violence but this the state is set up to to judge your case based on how visible 
your your injuries are, whether you fought back, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of male victims found that really tricky because there is an understanding based on you know really basic ideas of masculinity that a man would obviously fight back against his rapist. Very often, of course, not the case. And the only visible, the only injuries that the, and I'm using injuries in kind of scare quotes, that a man might have sustained are his mental injuries, are his psych- psychological injuries. And this is why psychiatric studies of male survivors were so important to try and make those kind of anxieties and those mental health impacts of sexual violence visible. But HIV is a massive part of that because of the fear that unknown sexual health exposure had, that, that, that's a real change in that period. So yeah, it's not an explicit reason for the change in the law, but I think it's an important part of the cultural landscape of that moment. I mean, what sorts of narratives, what sorts of stories would we hear if we reframed the concept of activism in the histories that you're telling? What kinds of activism have you found and are you kind of drawing out in your research? Some of the forms of activism or some of the practices that I am at least accessing through an activist lens are things like the psychiatrists who do these studies. And the, I mean, in Britain, across the board, there are not many, but in Britain, the kind of trailblazers are Michael King and Gillian Meze. And they begin their psychiatric study of male survivors at a time when the law did not recognise the category of male survivor. And that's very much in their minds going into this study. So it's not to say that this is you know, an unscientific study or that it's a study with the aim of changing the law, but it's very much I mean, explicitly in, in, in their minds. So I, I think there is an extent to which you can see this as an activist project, I think, I would be right in saying that it almost certainly would be rejected, that label would almost certainly be rejected by both those people. But what I'm trying to say there is it makes sense to me in a kind of the, the, the tapestry of activism that we might see as forming this kind of history. I think that makes complete sense. Um, but it, it's only possible if you frame activism in that much more general way and in a slightly, you know, in a way in which politics has a very lowercase p. You're inevitably going to get pushback from some of your actors there. But I really do, my, my contention would be that that history only makes sense when you have that, that larger kind of constellation of activism and that you're able to see the interrelation of those things, that you only get the more visible foundation of charities and of people more actively pushing for the, or, or at least explicitly pushing for a change in the law because you have those much more implicit anchoring studies going on that's just one example yeah um i think for me this question is is so interesting because it's it has kind of shaped how i came to this topic in the first place so i think first there are a lot of examples of sexual violence that come to light when you do this type of research that are just excluded from the narrative because they don't meet the prerequisites of being white, middle-class, and a woman. And so I think of like Sarah Winnemucca's 1883 autobiography, where she writes about like the heinous sexual violence she faces as a Native American woman at the hands of the colonial government. That's not included in the canon of sexual violence activism literature. Or Frances Thomas, who is um, a, a trans woman who testifies in front of Congress, which we would say that meets the definition of activism, even in the most standard sense, but she's excluded from the literature, even though this happens in the Reconstruction era, because she's talking about her rape by a mob of white men into her house. So I think there's these really standard examples that meet what we would call the definition of speaking out of sexual violence activism that are excluded because of the context of who was talking. But in my own research, I found quite interesting examples of activism, more along the lines of what George says, kind of questioning what it means to be an activist. And I can think of of two really good examples of this. My master's thesis looked at activism through the lens of Native American women building their own grassroots indigenous shelter network for survivors of domestic and sexual violence. And This happened beginning in the 70s all the way up to now, but these activists were not interested in bringing attention from 
the federal government because they thought that would only further the violence they face as communities. Instead, they built a what I argue is a network of shelters across the United States. And I think of um, Tilly Black Bear, who was one of the founders of these on her own land of a, a shelter for people. And that is a form of activism that is outside of indigenous studies is completely excluded from the literature because it's not seen as activists. It's seen as protecting women, but not changing the situation of women. And then more recently, I think about Sharon Assatoyer, who runs the Native Americans Women's Health Education Resource Center, which has quite the name on it, but they put out the ABC Handbook for Native Girls, which has fascinated me in, in such a tragic way, actually, which is a picture book for Indigenous girls that begins with A is for all you will face as a Native girl, B, because as a Native girl, you are more than three times as likely to be raped. And it goes through every letter of the alphabet, providing practical hands-on advice for little Native American girls who have faced sexual violence, who aren't able to cope with the literature that would be handed to them as an adult. It includes like, how do you get a plan B pill if you need one? Where can you find resources to travel to different places if you need help? And, and this organization, which is a wonderful organization based in the U.S., doesn't get considered in the same light of activism, again, because of who they're targeting, but also how they're doing it. And in this case, I find it so moving that it's culturally appropriate education targeted at an age group that faces violence. And to me, that is the center of what activism should be, but maybe conventionally isn't thought of that way. I mean, this question of the broader definition of activism and, and also of broadening it in order to include kind of activist scholars in the way that I think George is talking about as well, or problematizing the question, what's scholarship and what's advocacy, is very relevant to the shame project itself that you're all involved in. And I wanted to invite Rhea to chime in and talk about the shame project as a whole and how it is intervening in this discussion. Great, thanks. So yeah, as you say, so we've heard from Allison and George about how the, the definition and the practice of activism is complicated and nuanced and shifting over time, you know, depending on the research area you look at. Um, and that's certainly shared by our other researchers as well. I'm working on different areas, but still asking in their work, these questions around what counts as activism, how has that changed over time, who gets to participate, in some cases, who, who, who doesn't actually want to participate, for whom is this not a priority in terms of how they address their own experiences or lived experiences of sexual violence. Um, so we have all this rich research. And then what we do with public engagement is engage with that in a similar way, I think. So this idea of there being a lot of variety and difference in how we define activism and who's an activist is carried into who we partner with. So we work with a lot of survivor activists. So that's people who have publicly disclosed that they're survivors. We work with a lot of activists who may well be survivors of sexual violence, but haven't disclosed that publicly. Academic activists, artist activists, practitioner activists. So all these sort of hyphens that mean that People are doing activism in different ways. It takes different forms. It sits alongside work that they're doing personally and professionally in different ways. And it's incorporated into their identity in different ways. And what all of that means is, I think, the exclusions that our researchers identify and problematize in their research, we then, in a sense, try to remedy through our engagement work. So moving from a model of exclusion to inclusion. And our big work in that area is the Shameless Festival of Activism Against Sexual Violence, which is a Welcome Trust funded public engagement initiative where we've worked with the WOW Foundation, which is a UK-based charity that works towards creating a gender equal world. And we took our research expertise, their cultural and curator curatorial expertise, to create a platform that incorporated as many of these voices as possible in different formats so that people could contribute either sharing their experience, sharing their ideas, sharing their calls for action 
in ways that were meaningful and mattered to them. And so what we see our role as is being sort of like survivor led or activist led in the way we approach partnerships. Anyone who sort of knows the policy background of public engagement, knowledge exchange, civic engagement, community engagement, knows that you know one of the big pillars is that activity should be research led. And of course they are. We showcase the breadth of our research, the nuance, the depth, but we also try to approach our partnerships in a way that foregrounds and centers the voices of people we're working with so that what we create is really using our resources and our privilege in academia to create platforms for other people's voices to be heard. And it is, yeah, it's a, I'm sure we'll talk about it a bit more, but I think it is a really unique group in terms of having on the one hand, really rich research that problematizes these, these ideas in a really scholastically rigorous way, but also puts all of that to work in, in the way we engage with partners and engage with publics and audiences so that we can, yeah, I think are really committed to living up to our ideal of using our research to make a difference beyond the kind of impact that we have to show, but actually making a difference in the lives of not only activists and advocates, but survivors themselves. That's, yeah, fascinating. I wondered if Alison and George both wanted to step in here and you know, particularly that horrible word impact, which has all these metrics now attached to it in UK academia, but has in the context of the shame project, a much more generative and political remit, I suppose. And if you wanted to talk each of you about how you see yourself in terms of this, I don't want to say distinction, but this spectrum of activists, slash academic and how your work sits along that along on that line so my work on this project is trying very hard to engage with several publics and to do so if not from a place of activism then certainly from a place of wanting to affect some change in, in just the way that Ria has so beautifully put it but really the way I'm going about that at the minute is kind of twofold one is working with and partnering with some of the great activist groups and individuals that I came into contact with mainly from the Shameless Festival in London in particular I've been sort of collaborating with and talking with and working alongside Tanaka Mishi who is a really wonderful playwright poet activist is a trustee of Survivors UK terrific person and, and um, a plug for him his book comes out I think next year we'll keep an eye on, on that but doing work with him really to allow that kind of research-led narrative about certain public institutions. So both with him actually and with Alistair Hilton, who was a founder of First Step Leicester, which was one of the first, well, it was, it was the first male survivors group set up in Leicester in 1997, but they're soon to be celebrating a big anniversary. So trying to do some work to allow kind of the historical research to find contemporary audiences and to inform some contemporary anniversaries. But the other form of, I suppose, political work that I'm engaged in at the minute, which is much more kind of policy focused, is trying to engage policymakers and clinicians in a historically informed understanding of, or historically informed conversation about the place of HIV in post-sexual violence treatment and care. So I hosted an event in Parliament a few weeks ago where basically we had a policy roundtable with parliamentarians and clinicians and charity workers to discuss, actually in quite a contemporary sense, to discuss what are the barriers to good all-round HIV-related care for people who've been through instances of sexual violence. And the big takeaway, and this will be written up in into some kind of policy papers um, in the next few months, will the kind of big takeaways from those were that at the minute sexual health services are completely swamped, under-resourced. You know, this is a this is um, unsurprising and an obvious result of a decade of austerity and just attack after attack on a huge number of public institutions of which the NHS and sexual health services within them is just one but a very clear takeaway from that is the government could fix quite a lot of this very easily if they took sexual health services out of competitive commissioning that sexual health services that used to be in the you know during the 1980s 1990s one of the real successes of, of HIV activists who were doing you know, all round thinking was the one stop shop. This both the case for 
HIV services and for sexual health services. You know, the, the idea of the one-stop shop going for everything in one go as much as it's possible, it just is not really the case anymore. And that's in large part because the Health and Social Care Act 2012 really split lots of the sexual health services up and is forcing them to compete against each other for funding and for services that are integral to one individual, right? That it, it makes absolutely no sense and it's something that could be changed very simply. But in to kind of see a silver lining that we were able to have this conversation joined up across, as I say, parliamentarians, clinicians and charity work who support those people to see a number of really clear routes to change. So if we're able to try and lean on some of the public engagement expertise that um, the Shame Project has, and I'm looking very much to Ria there, we're trying to, to make those recommendations, those conclusions as, as public as possible and to try and see them within a slightly longer historical trajectory because when we understand that these things don't come from nowhere they come from a place they are decisions made for a reason they're also decisions that can be unmade so understanding that historical process is integral to the kind of more activist or more politically driven desire to see change in the future that was so interesting george just to say, I think that the work you do is so amazing. And I honestly, one great thing about the Shame Project is we have weekly meetings or, or ever bi-weekly meetings where we catch up, but we don't often get to hear a lot about the details of what's going on in each other's research. And that's, that's super fascinating. So for me, being an activist and being an academic are really weird labels or uncomfortable positions because I really struggle with academia. I never expected to come back into it. Just a tiny bit of context. I first came across the Violence Against Women Act and where it started for me, this project was a decade ago when I was working in a government affairs or a lobbying position in Washington, D.C. And I actually heard a congressional funding panel talking about this piece of legislation with Native advocates and it kind of spiraled. So for me, I think there is this, this want to, to fix government, but it was actually entering academia that made me realize that maybe we have to fix the way we research in the first place before the way that research gets translated into law becomes more helpful, because that's what my project does. It, it looks at how the research that underlays what becomes law is deeply disturbing, but more than that is violent and creates violence. So Rather than speaking to kind of what my project does to intervene in activism, I think what's interesting to me on, on that border is more activist methodologies. So I'm very lucky that the Shame Project is very interdisciplinary. So George is a historian. I, I don't know how to label myself, but we also have sociologists working on our team people who are anthropologists. So it's given me a lot of chance to think about these methodologies and we all work from different perspectives. And sometimes they're in direct conflict with how the other one researches, especially I think in the case of George and I, but our research does speak to each other. So I'm interested in how policymaking itself is part of the violence of sexual violence. And so I was looking for a methodology or a way of doing my research that intervenes and changes the way that we research policy. And to do this, I, I turned to um, kind of post-structural feminism, which argues that there is not a need to look at a cost-benefit analysis of a policy, but there is a need to look beyond that to what the law uses to craft itself. So what are the discourses that lie within it? And one of the steps that Carol Bakke, who is an amazing scholar who comes to post-structural policy making says is that we should self-problematize ourselves. So there is a need to problematize legislation for these discourses, but more than that, we should be applying these processes to ourselves, to reflexivity. So how, how do we situate ourselves in our research? And there's a huge explosion of this happening across academia, which is super important. But like, I am a white woman. I was raised on stolen lands of the Osage people. And there is something important there to think about as an activist. I'm a settler of the United States who had the privilege to come to the UK to study from the outside a group of people who continue to be colonized by the US government. And so my first piece of research, which I mentioned briefly, looked at how native activists built a grassroots shelter network across the US. And this was a master's thesis that I did over in the UK as well. And for me, that piece of research was absolutely fascinating. But at the same time, it introduced me to indigenous feminisms 
and indigenous gender scholars like Sandy Grand and Sarah Deer and Audra Simpson, who also write on these ideas that those aren't my histories to tell. Those are histories for indigenous women to tell, to decide when they're told. And, and part of that is not just that they're not mine, but that I can't truly understand not just the colonial violence that's endemic to the experience of native women, but also to the idea that there are so many joys and intricacies of life that I also will not know ever, nor can I understand. So when I thought about doing a PhD for the first time, because I do think that those histories deserve to be featured in the ways they should, I knew that I couldn't continue writing histories that I didn't feel were mine. And instead, I wanted to shift my research to think about the ways in which I can be a part of an activist solution to the violence that undoubtedly needs to be confronted in the US against Native American women. And for me, that's questioning my own government and the very violent laws that are in place that allow colonial violence to continue. So I really tried to shift my purview because I think activism is a a complete study in reflexivity. It's seeing where you're meant to lead and where you're meant to not lead. And my positionality as a white settler woman did not fit into telling histories that just distinctly were not mine. And instead, I think that my current research, which to be clear, I still struggle with a lot about where is the line of what I should be allowed to do. There's just as a a side note here, there's a brilliant book written by Linda Tuawai Smith, um, who's a Maori scholar, who she writes a book called Decolonizing Methodologies. And she basically poses a question like, your research, when it's methodological, it doesn't provide resources to indigenous communities who need them. So what are you doing? A and she answers this question in a productive way. But I think for me, I still struggle with that a lot what difference is my research making? But it was actually this shame project who kind of allowed me to think through this a bit more and actually Rhea in particular, because we've had a lot of discussions about how the way we think and the way the plan comes while we're thinking shapes the outcome of whatever program you're looking at. So she's talking about the way we think about the shame project and the outcomes it has. But for me, it's the way we think in academia and we make policy and law legislation has a lot of impacts for the actual communities on the receiving end of that legislation. So a very long-winded way of saying that I think as an activist, the most important thing for me has been considering my own positionality and reflexivity within my work and that methodology of really questioning the purpose of my research and what it's good for. Can, can I just add in one thing, because this came out in the big idea talk that you gave me, it was very powerful in the way that you present it, just in terms of the professional kudos and rewards that academic research brings and how, you know, we so easily as academics working on anything, take that as, as given and don't really explore the ethical obligations or ethical dimension of acquiring those institutional, those structural privileges, visibility, legitimacy through marshalling other people's pain. Yeah, just really briefly on that. A, a plug for my Big Ideas talk. It's now up on the SHAME website, so feel free to check that out. But that is kind of the inverse of what I'm about to say, which is that that research I wrote at, at the University of Oxford, I, I mentioned this in the Big Ideas talk, it, it came to time where I could publish it. And, and I got this deep sense of uncomfortability. And I think it comes from something I still struggle with, which I, I didn't mention, which is I still got my PhD there based on that history I wrote and that, or my master's. And that master's has now gotten me an offer for a PhD and now funding. And that is something for which I can directly say, telling horrific histories of sexual violence for a group that is not mine is directly responsible. And that's something I, I say in the speech and I'm, I'm always saying to people, I don't know how to provide reparations I don't know how to best recompensate a community that I extracted from. Um, but it is something that I think academics have to start thinking about in their work 
because you are extracting for the purpose of your own academic career. And it makes me really uncomfortable. And actually, I think Rhea it has, has quite a bit to say kind of on this idea of safeguarding victims or also in safeguarding the stories we tell. I think that that's something we work through a lot on the SHAME Project as well. Um, yeah, if you don't mind if I come in to just add on to that. Um, yeah, please do. We, uh, yeah, it's so fascinating. I mean, I've, I've heard Allison speak about this before and it's no less poignant each time you hear it. I think these are just crucial things to think about. So one of the things that we, of the many things we consider when we partner with people, when we put on public programming, are these kind of ethical questions? And I think there are two things that can happen, one of which is embedded in your question and in which Allison has discussed, this way in which academia is still like quite opaque. It's, it's a very like rarefied world, I think. And in a way that makes sense, you know, your focus is on very heavy intellectual work and that then, you know, it, it becomes shrouded in this kind of like, it's vocational, it's very separate from the way I think other jobs can be. And so, yes, it's easy to, to overlook that there are very tangible material benefits that come from the research that you do and also the engagement that you do. So even though we, um, you know, we collectively groan at impact and ref and things. We still do that and we still benefit from that at an institutional level and, and at an individual level. Then conversely, what can come out a lot with public engagement and engaging with communities is these sort of like vague, ill-defined ideas of benefit. And, and I think there is a place for that, the idea that there's a public good and that not everything can be measured in this quantitative way. But I think there's a danger of thinking, okay, well, we created a platform, someone's had a voice, that's a benefit for them and we've done a good thing. They've had an opportunity to come along and participate in something that they wouldn't necessarily have been able to otherwise. So that's a great benefit for them and we've done a good thing. But are there tangible outcomes for, for, the, for the partners we work with and the people we participate, um, the people who come to our, our events and our programming. So a lot of the things that we think about in addition to safeguarding and creating spaces of safety and respect and dignity are trying to think through in really practical ways, but what are people gonna take away from engaging with us? What, like, how do they actually benefit? Some of that is around literal compensation. So this is becoming a bit more of a thing in academia, but making sure that we pay people for their labor when we work with them, we're not asking them to volunteer their time. And then in a more complicated way, I suppose, is thinking about, you know, we have something like the Shameless Festival. It's one day. I think it did make a really big and important impact. And we certainly we've had feedback from people who attended on the day sharing all the, all, all the different ways in which, you know, they learned new things or made new connections, felt emboldened to undertake new actions around either um, engaging in activist work themselves or getting to a point where they could disclose being a survivor and finding sources of support for that. So th there were all kinds of important things. But on the other hand, that day ends and it's over. But we want to look at, are there ways in which actually we can carry that work forward for people who attend on the day, for speakers who contribute to the program to ask, well, how can we continue to support you with your very tangible material goals? So yeah, it's a long way of saying we, we really do try to, at the outset when we plan these things, be really blunt and explicit with ourselves about how we benefit and let that be an opening to say, and other people should benefit in very practical material ways as well. And how do we make that happen? Wonderful. I mean, that feels like a really terrific place to begin to circle towards an ending. I wonder if there was anything more any of you wanted to say, the future directions, what people, if people want to learn about the SHAME project, where they should go. I mean, much of that will be in the show notes, but anything that you want to kind of flag up either individually or as a team? Even though I just spoke, I might plug a couple of things, which is a couple of things in particular. So one is, yeah, please do check out the Shame website and the Shame blog. There's a real wealth of content on there, but particularly relevant to the conversation today 
is the content that we have from Shameless. So we'll have recorded talks there where you, you can see Allison as part of that big ideas panel that, that that's been discussed. George did a talk on male violence and masculinities. Um, there's also a podcast series. But there's a range of other things. And I started off by saying particularly relevant to this conversation and then went wider. One is Allison wrote a, a blog post before the festival about her reflections on our experience of safeguarding for the festival. So that talks a lot about these like ethical questions and also that the idea of engagement goes beyond just the programming itself, but actually how we designed our code of conduct and, and, and the training we undertook. And then our colleague, Ruth Beecher, who's another postdoctoral fellow on the SHAME Project, ran an interactive workshop um, that was this like timeline of resistance against sexual violence. So we started today talking about like, what's the timeline? What are these milestones? When, when do we start to see activism against sexual violence? And she did this great workshop that had, you know, sort of all these different points in time and invited participants to put together a chronology and then look at yeah, how that was different from either what they expected, what, what Ruth and what we expected. So she has a nice piece on that up on the website. So, so that's, those are two among many things to, to definitely check out if you came away from this podcast wanting more information. I just want to flag a couple other things that might be interesting. We recently were really excited to do the series with History Workshop Online, which is what this podcast came out of, about institutional sexual violence. And I think everyone on this podcast, actually, and a lot of our team contributed to that. So there's a lot of discussion of the things we talked about today. George talks about what it means to be a male sexual violence survivor. Our colleague Ruth Beecher talks about sexual violence within the family, and she reflects on activism in the context of what it means to be an activist for child sexual abuse, and especially within the family. And there are many other pieces that have been added up, but I think that they're really interesting reflections on who should be included in what sexual violence really entails and the activism against it. Many thanks to George Severs, Alison McKibben, and Rhea Sukdeo Singh for taking part in this conversation. Links to their work and the work of the SHAME Project can be found on the episode page of this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.